0: If you would, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. If you read along with me, it says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If you would pray with me this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this church here, Lord, Country Oaks. God, thank you for this body, Lord. I know it's a loving body that... Uh, expresses that love, Lord, towards each other. I pray, Lord, as we go through this passage, as we've been talking about unity over the last couple of weeks, Lord, as we continue to look at what it means to love each other and to be unified as a body, Lord, I just pray that through your Spirit, God, we grow even more in love with each other, Lord. That our love for each other, that our oneness, Lord, would be an example, would be a testimony to the community around us, Lord. I pray that we reflect who you are, Lord, in how we interact with each other. And I pray, Lord, that we grow in our understanding of not just who you are, Lord, and not just what you would have for us, Lord, but, but the motivation for why we should love each other, Lord. Just pray that you're with us this morning. In your son's name, amen. We're about at the halfway point in... Um, the book of Ephesians. And as I have said, and I think it's important, I'm going to say again, this book uh, could be outlined in two major divisions. There's a a first section and a second section, and Paul's thought, the first three chapters are the doctrine and the theological section of Ephesians. It's what has happened when we put our faith in Christ, what, what God has done and the second half, chapters four through six, is the ethical or practical section, how we should respond to these truths. Chapters one through three is what has happened. It's this deep theology, and chapters four through six is how we should live in light of this deep theology. And they're meant to be connected. The deep theology is meant to be foundational into how we live. And that's why we've been saying. Throughout this uh, study in Ephesians that the theme, and this is something I just made up, the theme of Ephesians is the depth of God's grace lived out in love. The depth of God's grace, deep truths about God's grace, chapters 1 through 3, lived out in love, chapters 4 through 6. And we've been um, on really one subject for the last couple months as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and that one subject is unity. Unity that Jews and Gentiles in this church in Ephesus are are one body, right? That the church is one body. And we're going to start the second half of Ephesians this morning, chapters 4 through 6, and this is Paul's practical half, Paul's practical commands to the church, how we should live out this theology, how we should live out this unity. And there's three points that I have for today's sermon. And the first point is this, the motivation— for unity. Second point is the characteristics of unity. And finally, the foundation supporting unity. It's the motivation for unity, the characteristics of unity, and the foundation supported, supporting unity. So the first point this morning is the motivation for unity. And it, it, it's right there, Ephesians 4 1, it says, I, therefore. That's it, right there. That's the correct motivation. Therefore, therefore points back to the deep theology found in chapters 1 through 3, the deep truths about God's grace. These truths need to be our motivation for right living. Obedience needs to be motivated by sound doctrine. I love, actually, how John MacArthur words it. He says this in his commentary. Right doctrine is essential to right living. It is impossible to live a faithful Christian life without knowing biblical doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching. It's biblical teaching. It's biblical truth. And there is no way that even the sincerest believer can live a life pleasing to God without knowing what God himself is like and knowing the sort of life God wants him to live. Those who set aside biblical theology set aside also sound Christian living. The overarching purpose of Ephesians, I really believe, is unity and love. That's why Paul wrote this letter to this church. Right? Unity, obviously, is a main theme. I hope you've been seeing that. That Paul is writing to a church that's mostly Gentiles, and he's telling them that they are one with Jews, they're one body, and that they should live as one body. But my question I want to ask, and I just want you to think through this, is how does Paul do this? Right? How does Paul want unity to be achieved in this church? Not by force. Right? Paul doesn't start his letter with commands. In fact, in the first three chapters, there's one command, and that command is just remember. Remember all this theology. Remember this deep truth about God's love and God's grace towards us. Why wait to give commands all the way to chapter 4? There's one command in the first three chapters. There's 39 commands in the last three chapters. Why wait? Well, this is what one theologian said. Forced unity is unacceptable because it is not genuine. Thus, unity must originate from within. True unity is accomplished when people love one another. Therefore, we see that, that unity is a major theme of Ephesians, but I truly think love is the ultimate theme of Ephesians. Love is the purpose that Paul wrote this, this book, this letter to the church, this, this church that Paul loved. He wants them to know God's love so that they would love God and love each other, that they would be unified in love. Not just by a command. It's just interesting. And I, and I said this at the intro in Ephesians, but that was a long time ago, so I'm going to say it again. About 30 years after this letter was written, after Paul wrote this letter, the apostle John writes the same church. In fact, if you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. It's on the screen. If uh, you just want to look up there, it says to the angel of the church at Ephesus. That's the same church that Paul wrote to, right? The Book of Ephesians. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Right? Jesus is commanding the apostle John to write these words. He says, "The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands." That's that's Jesus. These are Jesus' word to the, the words to the church at Ephesus, verse two. I know your works. You toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves the apostles and are not and found them to be false. In other words, you have refuted false teaching and that's good. That's good. That's what Jesus is saying. Good job. Right? You knew scripture. You knew your theology. You knew your doctrine well enough to sniff out people that were, were preaching false doctrine, false theology, and, and you refuted them. In other words, this church's theology was solid. Look what they say. Look look what Jesus says in verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. This church lost its first love, and its first love was a love for God, and through that, a love for one another. It's just interesting, a lack of love seems to be a problem with this church over and over again in Scripture. Paul's addressing it in the book of Ephesians. First, John was a letter written to the church, and, and John's addressing it, and then we see it in Revelation. You know the ironic thing about this is this, this church was known for its solid theology and lack of love, so you would expect Paul to say something like this: "Stop studying and start loving. Stop studying and start doing." But that's not what Paul says. Instead, Paul starts this letter with the three deepest theological chapters in all of Scripture. <laughs> then he says, because of this deep theology, now love. The reason I bring this up is I hear Christians say all the time, we need less doctrine and more love. Like those two things go against each other somehow. We need less theology and more love. You're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture. I just want to be clear. You're never going to find anywhere in Scripture that says less theology, less doctrine, less knowledge of God. Paul never says you need less doctrine. He actually says you need more doctrine. You need more doctrine and more love. You need both. Yes, you can have all the doctrine in the world and not love. It doesn't mean you should have less doctrine. It just means you need more love. That's what Paul does here. This deep doctrine should be our motivation to deep love. Deep truths about God and his grace should motivate us to deep love for one another. Look what he says, Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, therefore, because of chapters 1 through 3, this deep doctrine, this deep theology, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I, Paul, urge you. That word urge in Greek is parakalo, which means to ask earnestly or to request or to plead for. It's a command, but Paul's pleading with the church. And he adds I, ego, which is implied in that verb. So he didn't have to add the ego, but he's, he's doing it for emphasis. I, and then he even adds a prisoner of the Lord to add weight. I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk. The word walk is a metaphor for one's conduct or or way of life. It's the Christian walk. It's the way we should live. I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, I, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, it's an interesting phrase, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's almost a tongue twister. That second part of the phrase, you have been called, is actually one word in Greek. It's one word in the Greek, and it's past tense. That's why have been called. It's in the past. It's what happened at salvation. If you're saved this morning, if you're Christian, at conversion, that's when this happened. You have been called. It's also in the passive voice. In other words, we didn't act. God did. God is acting, not man. The action happened to us. This is why... I don't love the NIV's translation of this verse. I think the NIV is a good translation. Every translation has its issues, but the NIV I think misses the nuances, nuance in this, in this verse. This is what it says in the NIV. As a, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The connotation is that we are acting, we received, or we took. But the verb is passive in the Greek. This calling happened to us, and that's why I think the NIV just really gets the nuances of it. It says, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's something that's happened to us, and, and, and what's that look like, a calling that's happened to us? Well, I think a great example is just Paul's calling, right, the author. Right, he wasn't seeking Jesus. In fact, he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians when God knocked him off his horse. The calling happened to him. God acted. And I really believe it's the the driving force of Paul's command in verse 1. All of chapters 1 to 3 is what God has done for us, to us, with us. It's God's action. Walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Worthy, that word in Greek, actually the root idea of that is a scale, weight on a scale. You have one side of the scale that's really weighty. And you need something worthy of that weight to bring it equal, and Paul is saying, saying we should try to live lives equal to the great blessing that has been just given to us. The great blessings described in chapters one through three, we should we should live in a way that's worthy of that. We should pursue a life worthy of that. And what are these blessings? Every blessing. In chapter one, verse three. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and every every blessing. Chapter four, God chose us before the foundations of the world. Or chapter one, verse four, verse five, predestined us for adoption, redeemed us by his blood, verse seven, forgave us our trespasses, lavished upon us his grace, verse eight, gave us wisdom and insight, verse nine, gave us an inheritance, an inheritance, Verse 11, and sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, chapter 1. But not only that, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Chapter 2, verse 1. And he made us alive. Verse 4. And raised us up. Verse 5. And seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Verse 6. Not only that, he brought us near. Verse 13. We that were far off, he brought us near and gave us peace. Verse 14. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility and reconciled us, not just with himself, but with men. Verse 16, he gave us access to the Father by the Spirit. Verse 19, he gave us citizenship in the kingdom. He made us members of the household of God. He made us a holy temple. Verse 21, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Verse 22, chapters 1 through 3, God is acting. He gives and gives and gives and gives. And the NIV is right. We receive. He is the great giver and we are the great receivers. We receive, but we passively receive. We have earned absolutely nothing that we receive. It's God's grace God's grace alone, Ephesians 2, 8, 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. Don't take any credit. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast God gets all the glory. We finally get to chapter four and the application Paul part, and Paul says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God to which you have been called. And I want to be clear on this. Even even this, even our Christian walk is grace. Look at Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. That's masterpiece. We're his creation, in other words. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should just walk in them. That's the Christian walk. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Even our walk is a gift. It's a gift from God. I want you to think about this, because I just want to get our minds wrapped around this. Christianity is different than any other religion. First of all, it's true, and all other religions are false. But besides that, even the the core belief in Christianity is different than every other religion, because we are saved by grace, not works. Every other religion is workspace. It's what we have done to earn favor by a deity or whatever else. Christianity is all about grace. It's nothing we did. It's all about what God has done for us. When you were saved, when you put your faith in Christ, your sins were imputed to Christ. In other words, God treated Jesus as if he lived our lives. He died on the cross for our sins so we can be forgiven. Not only that, Christ's righteousness was imputed to you. If you're a Christian this morning, if you've trusted in Christ, his righteousness, in other words, God treats you as if you lived Christ's life. So that when God looks at you, you know what he sees? His son. Let me just ask a question Can you add to that? Can you add something to that? We can't. Our motivation for obedience, obeying God, should never be to improve our standing with God. We can't improve it. How are you going to improve on Christ's righteousness? As soon as you were saved, as soon as you were saved, we, we, we were promised an inheritance. We were redeemed from slavery. We were forgiven past, present, and future sins. We are a part of God's family. He is our Father. In fact, Romans eight thirty one says, what, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In fact, in verse 38, it says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're there. There's nothing we can do. When God sees you, he sees his Son. That's amazing. How can you improve on that? There's nothing. There's nothing. So it leads to the question why obey? Why obey? What should be our motivation to obey the Lord? There's just two things, and they're, two, they're the same thing. It's really just two different ways of looking at it. The first one's this trust, because we trust God. We trust Him. God is good, and He wants what's best. He wants what's best for His glory and for our good, for our joy. And we may not get it. He may ask us to do things that we're like, I don't get it, but I trust you. And so I'll I'll listen. The second reason is love. We just love God. We want to make much of his name. Listen, if you don't have those two things, then you're not saved. (laughs) That's why they're fruit. That's why obedience is fruit. Trust is another word for faith. Faith. You trust, you have faith in God that he asks you to do something. You're like, all right, I'll do it because I, I know you're good. Love is because you love the Lord and you want to make much of his name. And therefore you obey. That's the correct motivation. It's trust and love. And listen, trust and love only grows with a deeper understanding of who God is and what he has done for us. Who God is, that's theology. That's theology. Theos is God. Ology is the study of it's studying who God is. It's doctrine, it's truth about God that we find in Scripture and what He has done for us. It's knowledge of His grace. That's why Paul starts in chapters one through three with this deep understanding of God and His grace towards us. He wants us to love each other with the correct motivations. Trust and love of God should be our motivations for unity. For unity. Ephesians 4.1, therefore, therefore, chapters 1 through 3, therefore, because of this love and grace that God has poured out on us, the blessings that he just continues to bless us, he lavishes on us, therefore, walk in a matter worthy of the calling which, which you have been called. That's the motivation for unity, for loving each other within the church. The next point this morning is the characteristics of unity, the characteristics of unity, the motivation for unity, love and trust in the Lord, characteristics of unity. Look at verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, walk in a matter worthy of the calling with which you have been called, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul, gives us four characteristics of someone that is pursuing unity. And I want to make it clear, and we're going to get there. It says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Paul is asking us to be eager, to pursue unity. Not to be passive in our pursuit, but to pursue, to actively pursue unity within the church. He gives us four characteristics. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. So I want to look at all of these. The first one, humility. Right, Paul says, with all humility. Right? That's how you walk worthy of the calling of which you've been called, with all humility. The all, just real quick, modifies both humility and gentleness. It just denotes the highest degree or level of humility and gentleness towards each other. Again, the context is with each other within the local body. It's interesting. The Romans and the Greeks despise the idea of Humility. Humility was just considered weakness. And so they really didn't have a word for humility because humility is is a virtue. It's it's something that's good. And there is no no idea of, of, of humility that would be good. That's a foreign concept to them. So there wasn't a word for humility in the Roman and Greeks. So many historians or most historians believe that Christians, maybe even Paul himself, invented a Greek word, in the Greek word that's used in the New Testament for humility, and it's a compound word, it's just two words put together, which really just means lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. In the biblical worldview, humility is foundational. It's foundational. We cannot even begin to please God without humility. What is humility? Well, it's the uh, opposite of Pride. That's what first Peter five five says. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That means humility and pride are opposites. Humility is really putting others before yourself. That's Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in all humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. In other words, prefer your brother over yourself. Make much of his preferences. Look to... To, 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 to others. Count them more significant than yourself. Humility is something that's modeled by Jesus. Philippians 2.5 says, have this mind among yourself. And Paul is telling the church, hey, think this way. Think this way. Think of yourself this way. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, a thing to hold on to but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself it's just amazing he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross listen jesus is our example in the garden jesus didn't want to go to the cross He says he prays to his father if there's any other way. But he was obedient to his father by loving others and putting them before himself. Others, listen, others that abandoned him. Others that denied him. Others that hurt him. Others that sinned against him. Jesus still loved them in all humility. Went to the cross, put them before himself. That's our example. That's Christ likeness. And listen, God blesses the humble. James four six says, Therefore, say or therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, or Matthew five three, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's the humble. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or Jesus, again, our example of Philippians 2 eight says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, because of his humility, because of his, his obedience, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. One pastor put it this way, Humility is an ingredient of all spiritual blessings. Just as every sin has its root in pride, every virtue has its roots in humility. Humility allows us to see ourselves as we are because it shows us God as He is. Just as pride is behind every conflict we have with other people and every problem of fellowship we have with the Lord, so humility is behind every harmonious human relationship and every spiritual success and every moment of joyous fellowship with the Lord. Humility promotes unity. Pride destroys it. And Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. All gentleness. Right? Humility leads to gentleness. Or meekness, gentleness to each other. Many people hear that word meekness or even gentleness and they think like timid or lack of courage. That's a meek person or or a gentle person. It's the wrong connotation of the Greek word that's translated gentle. It's actually this word is used in taming animals. It's like a horse. Just think of a horse for a second. I'm like always amazed by horses. We see them everywhere in Tehachapi, driving past them, and they're not that intimidating when you drive past them, but when you walk up to one of them, horses are, are big. <laughs> and then you like, look at the horse, and it's just muscle. Like they're big and strong. The Greek word here for gentleness, or the Greek word that's used for meekness, is like a powerful horse that's tame, that's gentle, that can be gently ridden. A lot of times by small girls, too, like little young girls. I'm just amazed at these massive horses. I like, love the barrel races at the rodeo. Right? These, these, these girls controlling these horses. So gentle, under control. Horses aren't weak. They're under control. This word, it means power under control. Power under control. A good picture of this, honestly, is Aslan and the Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, right? I like the new movies because it's not a cartoon, it's like real life, and you have this real life line. I mean, I know it's a computer animated whatever, but but you get the picture of this massive line just gentle with the four children. That's meekness, that's gentleness. Biblical meekness is power under control. Therefore, true marks of, of gentleness and meekness is just self-control. Right? The true mark of gentleness and meekness is self-control, and our greatest example is Jesus, again. Just how gentle Jesus was with the apostles and people that he met and talked to. He, he was gentle. I mean, he had power. Think of the Mount Transfiguration where he shone like the sun. You can look at him. Or in the garden. right in the Hundreds of Roman soldiers are coming to him and, and they say, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am. And they all fall on their faces. He had power. Hebrews 1, 3 says, and he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Atoms hold together because he speaks. I mean, that's Power. Yet he was gentle and self-controlled with people, people that hurt him, people that sinned against him. This is how we're called to interact with each other. Again, the context here is within the church. Right? It's also within your marriage. Don't get me wrong there, because for the most part, most of us are saved or are, are, are married to people that are within the church. All the one another's apply to your marriage too. Gentle, self control not quick temper. It should take a lot to get us upset with each other. It leads to the next characteristic, patience. Long-tempered or long-suffering. Right? Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And that makes sense, right? The Spirit is God, and the fruit of God is patience, because God is patient with us. Galatians 5.21, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Patience is a defining quality of love. First Corinthians 13:4, love is patient. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. Love is patient. Are you patient? Are you patient with your brothers and sisters within the church? Listen, are you patient with people even when you get sinned against or when people hurt you? Are you patient with those people? Because look at the next characteristic. Part of patience is bearing with one another in love. Fourth characteristic is forbearance. Bearing with one another in love. The Greek word for, for bearing is to take up, to bear up, or probably the best definition, is to endure. To endure with each other. It's something you need to understand, and I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again and again and again and again and again. If you get involved in a church, if you get deeply involved in the church, you are going to get hurt. (laughs) You're going to get sinned against at some point. And just so you know, you're going to sin against someone else and hurt someone else. Just keep that in mind, too. And this might sound weird, but it's all part of God's plan. How else can you love like Jesus or forgive like God unless you get sinned against or hurt? Look what it, listen to what it says in Colossians 3.13. Bearing, there it is again, bearing with one another, one another's, that's us, bearing with one another, and if, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. How can you forgive someone as the Lord has forgiven you if you don't get sinned against or or if you don't get hurt? Listen, this is just something I want you to think about. There's, There's a few things we can't do in eternity. Like Most things you do better in eternity. We're going to worship better in eternity. We're not going to sin, so we're going to live better lives in eternity. We're going to know God better in eternity. We're going, to, we're going to be in his presence. There's all these things that we're going to do in better eternity. There's a few things we can't do. One of them is evangelize. This is your only opportunity. Eternity, there's no non-Christians, right? <laughs> can't evangelize. Another one's suffering. Right? We, we get one chance at suffering well. right? Suffering well in this life. Eternity, there's no suffering. You can't do it. Another one is forgiving each other. This is our only opportunity, right? And if you're, if you're part of a church, you're going to get sinned against. You're going to get hurt. You know why? Because the church is full of, of sinners. Welcome to Country Oaks, right? We're all sinners. <laughs> so much so that Peter just assumes, assumes sin and hurt is going to happen in the context of the church. First Peter 4a says, above all, that's Strong language, inspired by God. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Another strong word, right? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He just assumes it's going to happen. It doesn't mean it should happen, but, but we're sinners, we're going to mess up. He assumes sin will happen because, because we're all sinners. And look what Peter says. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's just, sometimes it just lets it go. It doesn't hold on to it. Sometimes you have to confront people, but sometimes you just let it go. So I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm just going to let it go. You know, that's just the exact opposite of, of, of gossip and slander. Gossip and slander is not letting it go. It's not covering it up. It's exposing it to everyone else. It's pointing everyone else to someone's sin. Right? It destroys unity, gossip, and slander. That's why Proverbs ten twelve says, Hatred stirs up strife. Gossip is hatred, in other words. It stirs up strife. It's trying to get people mad at each other. It's trying to get people to look down at other people. It says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, bearing with one another in love. Listen, I want to be clear on this too. It's not just tolerating one another. It's not just tolerating one another or avoiding each other. Right, I'm going I'm to cover this sin and I'm going I'm to bear with one another by just not talking to that person and staying away from them. That's not love. Right, look what it says. It says bearing with one another in love. In other words, it takes abuse From others while actively loving them. That's a hard calling. It's also Christ like. Imagine if Christ was just like, I'm sinned against, I'm out of here. They left me, I'm done. I ain't going to the cross for them. It's sacrificial love. It's actually the biblical definition of love. Listen, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient and kind. It, it love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or, or resentful. It does, not, or it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It endures. Love bears all things. It believes all things. Right? It believes the best in people. It doesn't believe the worst. Our default is the worst. Remember the grocery store, I see someone, they don't say hi to me. My default's like, oh, the jerk, I can't believe he said hi to me. He didn't say hi to me. Love believes all things. He must not have seen me. <laughs> I'm just going to believe that. It looked like he saw me, but I'm just going to believe he didn't see me. It hopes all things. I hope, right? I hope the best in that person. It endures all things. There's no room for gossip or slander in love. Paul says bearing with one another in love. This is agape love. This is the kind of love that seeks the highest good in the one loved. It is an unconditional love that seeks seeks, it does not seek a response. It's a love that only seeks the glory of God and the good of the other, even at personal cost sometimes. That's the love we're called to have for each other. You know, it's just interesting. Again, I'm not saying that this love isn't for marriage, too. If you're, it, it, we should love our spouse. in um, the way the Bible says to love, 1 Corinthians 3 4, is used in premarital counseling, it's used in marital counseling, it's, it's used at weddings. But the context of 1 Corinthians 13 has nothing to do with marriage, it has to do with how we treat each other in the church. How we treat each other in the church. Look at Ephesians 4, 1 again. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you, which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You know what's interesting about that last verse, verse 3? is the word maintain, maintain. In other words, not create, maintain. Don't create unity within the church. Maintain unity in the church. Unity of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is the one that has has created unity. We are to maintain unity. What's that mean? It just means that we're already unified. We are one body. We are one temple. We are one family by the Spirit. That's reality. We're called to maintain that reality. We're called to live who we truly are, one. And not just maintain it, but look what Paul says. Eagerly maintain it. And NASB says to be diligent, right? Or zealous is, is a good word. Have a zeal for unity. Do you have a zeal for unity? Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Paul is exhorting the church to walk worthy of their call, Right? of which they've been called by, by making every effort to keep unity in the church, to keep the unity of the Spirit to the glory of God. Are you actively doing this? Do you have a zeal for unity? Do you make every effort to keep unity? Just so you know, and I, and I hope this is, I don't have to say this, but you have to be involved in, in people's lives to do that. Some of the reasons again we try to get people into small groups into intimate relationships with each other so you can pursue unity. That's our calling. I mean, people get offended so easily nowadays. People write other people off so easily. People leave groups and churches and, and friendships and relationships and marriages over nothing. Paul is calling us to have a zeal. A zeal for unity, to, to be humble, gentle, patient, forbearing, and loving one another. So Benjamin Merkel writes, I, I just like this quote, Paul emphasizes the need to walk in with humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, and peace. Each of these attitudes is essential to maintaining unity in the church. Humility is needed because pride insists on getting its own way. Gentleness is needed because anger offends and harms others. Patience is needed because we cannot control the actions of others. That includes God. Tolerance is needed because because everyone has weakness. Love is needed because it's the oil that lubricates all of these virtues. And peace is needed because unity cannot truly exist without God's people being united by the peace that surpasses all understanding. Our peace, our love, our unity should be a testimony a testimony of God. And that brings us to our last point, the foundation supporting unity. Right? The motivation of the unity we should have as a body is just trust and love of God. That should motivate us to love each other, sacrificially trusting God that that's what will glorify him and bring, bring blessings to us. Right? The characteristics of unity, a person that, that is, is pursuing unity is humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love. Foundation supporting unity is the third point. And the question I want to ask how does unity glorify God? It sounds like a dumb question. And some of you might be thinking, that was a dumb question. Um, everyone wants unity, right? Not everyone pursues it eagerly and, and does what brings unity, but everyone wants unity because unity is a good thing, right? It's attractive. Peace is attractive. So how does unity glorify God? The answer is this. It glorifies God because it reflects God. Unity reflects God. God is unified. He is at peace within himself. He is a God of love. He is a trinity. A triune God. Three persons who perfectly love each other, who are at perfect peace with one another, who are unified. Look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, who through all and in all. In verses 4 through 6, Paul is laying out the foundation to our unity, which is the Trinity. It's the Trinity. Verses 4 focuses on the spirit. There is one body and one spirit, Verses 5 focuses on the Lord, right? That's Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And verses 6 focuses on the Father. Verse 6 one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Listen, our unity, our unity, glorifies God. Because God is a tri unity, He's a trinity. The Trinity is foundational to our unity. So much so that we're actually going to be spending two more weeks on this third point. We're going to be looking at the Trinity over the next two weeks, these three verses. because It's just foundational to unity. We're diving back into deep theology. But it's foundational. But before we end, I just, would, I just want you to see Jesus' heart. I, to be honest... I knew unity was important, right? I knew that just growing up in the church, you know unity is important within the church. I didn't know how important it was until studying Ephesians. It's just got a whole new appreciation to me of, of what God has called us to do as a church as we've been going through this book in my life personally is what I've been learning as I've been studying. I want you to hear Jesus' heart when it comes to unity, us as a church. If you would turn to John 17, I'm just going to end here. John 17, which is, this is an amazing chapter. Look at verse 1. This is an amazing chapter. This is, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is Jesus' prayer. His, he's praying for his people, he's praying for his disciples, he's praying to, to the Father, the Son is praying to the Father. God the Son is praying to God the Father for us. Just think about that. Jesus is interceding for us right now. He's interceding for us right now. He's probably interceding a prayer that's like this. Verse 1 says this, when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, he's praying to God, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And it's just, I love this, he's praying to to the Father, and he starts with the foundation. Glorify me, glorify you, so, so that we will be glorified, because that's what's good for my people. God's glory is what's best for us. It's what, what, what fulfills our, our deepest needs and satisfaction. It's what, what we find our joy in is God's glory. And, and Jesus is praying, glorify, glorify yourself, Lord, God, for the people, for us. That's where he starts. But skip down to verse 10. We spend so much time on this chapter. Verse 10 says, all, are, all mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Hear that? Jesus is praying. I want them to reflect us, our unity, right, to the world. Our, our, our unity is a testimony to the world. Look at verse 22. "The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me." Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, Lord, God, I see your heart here. It's just displayed that Jesus, Lord, is praying that we would be one, Lord, that Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus to, to love each other and, and be unified in, in one faith and one hope as one body, Lord. I pray that that's true about Country Oaks, Lord. I'm thankful for this church, Lord, that I, I just see the love that this church has for each other, Lord. And I just pray that that love just grows. Lord, that it would be a testimony to your love, Lord, to your oneness, to your love that you share within the, the, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how they love each other, how they are one in love, Help us to reflect that, Lord, in how we treat each other. God, I pray that the testimony of Country Oaks is is sound teaching, Lord, sound doctrine, is of, of making much of Your Word, but also love, Lord, love for each other, and boldness with Your gospel, and that's loving those outside the wall, Lord, is proclaiming the good news, Lord. I pray that that is our testimony, that is our identity, Lord. Be with us, Lord, as we we examine who you are as a Trinity, Lord, and how we should reflect that as a church and how we interact with each other, Lord. And I pray for the marriages, Lord, in our church. There would be love, there would be patience, there would be humility with each other, Lord. There would be a oneness that reflects you. Be with us, Lord, in your son's name, amen.